Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to us today. How you doing today, Sarah? I am doing pretty good. Did chores, gardening, you know, cool stuff. What about you? Uh, I am feeling kind of wiped out. You had a busy weekend. It's been a busy weekend. Um, On Friday, I got a haircut, which feels like a momentous thing. Um, I've gotten my haircut three times now since the start of the pandemic. Um, I went till August of 2020 without getting one. And then I cut my own hair in February of 2021. And then I fixed it. Yeah. And then... (laughs) I haven't had a haircut since then till now, and I got it cut very short. I shaved my beard off. Um, I still have a mustache, but it was like very much a like, ah, new look, new Ben kind of thing. I have started a new job. Um, I am now the programming coordinator of the Calgary Cinematheque, which basically means that it's now my job to do this, but for all kinds of different movies at theaters in the city it's like the perfect job for you sure yeah so i had um that coming up monday today as we're recording it is my 31st birthday happy birthday thank you and we had a bunch of my friends over for an outdoor get together on saturday night uh fire pit hot dog roast yeah which was a lot of fun i drank alcohol well the the thing is is like i'll agree with you and say yes but i don't want to make it sound like i was drinking some absurd amount it's it's like yeah i drank too much but i feel like mostly it's that i basically haven't party night out drank in over a year so my newly 31 year old body was super not happy with me the next day Yeah, when I say you drink too much, I mean for a (laughs) 31-year-old. Who doesn't party anymore. Yes. Um, And then on the Sunday, when we normally record Scream Scene, we went over to my parents' uh, house to see them for Father's Day. And basically, by the time we got home after that, I was just plumb too tuckered out to record. So we shifted the record to today, and Sarah took the day off work because it's my birthday and we could spend time together. But I apparently immediately becoming like a sitcom stereotype husband the instant I get a job worked today (laughs) on my birthday and didn't spend time with Sarah during the day. So now we're doing the show and this is our time together. And it's also our time with you guys, our creatures of the night. So thank you for joining us on this special day. Yes. I do think it's going to be a very interesting episode. Okay. Um, I've been kind of excited for okay. it. Um, why don't you introduce what we are watching today? For sure. So this is a movie that I had like never heard of before, um, before we started doing the show. And I am very interested in it, uh, having done the research. 
I do think potentially you might have a lot to say about this one. But we are watching She-Devil from 1957. And for your SEO purposes, this is not the She-Devil, and there is no hyphen between she and devil. Two separate words. Mm -hmm. And it's directed by Kurt Newman. (laughs) Yes, uh, who I'm quite excited about. Now, this movie is based on like a pulp sci-fi short story, if I understand it correctly, Sarah? Yes. Uh, This short story is titled The Adaptive Ultimate from Stanley G. Weinbaum. Okay. Now, it was published in 1935, so it's a little older. Oh, yeah. So this short story comes to us from... Stanley G. Weinbaum. He was born in 1902 in Louisville, Kentucky, to a Jewish family. Um, When he was in high school, he published a short story in the school paper uh, called The Lost Battle about World War I. He would go on to the University of Wisconsin at the Madison campus, and he would study chemical engineering. But science is hard. (laughs) So after two years, he decided to switch to studying English while doing writing on the side. However, he never graduated, um, not due to any lack of scholastic effort on Weinbaum's part. Um, I guess on a bet, he took an exam for a friend and was discovered. So uh, he left the university in 1923. Oh, no. <laughs> After leaving university, he continued to read on his own and write um, just a ton of work. He got married, you know, just doing the adult thing. And then he got his first novel published, and is really his first piece of writing published, in 1933. It was a romance titled The Lady Dances. Now, this was to a publisher who had previously rejected his novel, The Mad Brain, a uh, (laughs) sci-fi novel, if you couldn't tell. When he submitted The Lady Dances, he did it under the pseudonym Marge Stanley, um, I think to kind of like differentiate himself from that Mad Brain submission. Yeah. But it it seems like pretty unique for a male author submitting under a female name. You usually see the reverse. Yeah. So kind of interesting. His next book published work is considered his most well-known, and it's published under his own name. It's the short story A Martian Odyssey, published in 1934 in the journal Wonder Stories, with editors at the time being David Lasser and Charles Horning. Do you know anything about A Martian Odyssey? I've never heard of it. Okay, it's apparently a big deal. Yeah, this is... Surprising. I, I usually like I'm pretty up on my like golden age of sci-fi pulp stuff. So, well, maybe because Weinbaum is like a little before, like he helped spark the golden age. Sure, sure. You said this was 1934. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a little early. This is sci-fi. Certainly at this point is much more space opera in nature. Now this short story was so successful that he published a sequel only like four months later okay. called Valley of Dreams. Now, both of these are set on Mars. I'm really surprised you haven't heard of the Martian Odyssey because it sounds like it 
was pretty significant to an author that I know you're familiar with, Isaac Asimov. Oh, really? Then I am also very surprised that I haven't heard of it. Asimov said of A Martian Odyssey and its main character named Tweel that it was a quote, perfect Campbellian science fiction story with a creature who thinks as well as a man or better than a man, but is not a man, Hmm. end quote. And that was modus operandi of uh, Joseph Campbell when he was accepting stories as an editor. Yeah, sort of ironic that these aren't Campbell stories. No. In 1935, Weinbaum would publish his third short story, Flight on Titan, this time in the journal Astounding Stories of Super Science. Oh, yeah. The editor at the time was F. Orlin Tremaine. Um, in 1937 is when John Campbell would become editor. So okay. again, still before Campbell. Okay. And most of Weinbaum's work would either be published in Astounding or Wonder Stories. Okay. The Adaptive Ultimate would be Weinbaum's 11th published short story, though he had many other works through collaborations with other authors and many unpublished works sitting on his desk. The Adaptive Ultimate was written under his pen name John Jessel, and it features a Dr. Daniel Scott going to his... Great Scott! (laughs) Going to his colleague, Dr. Herman Bach, looking for a test subject. Never a good sign. (laughs) So Dr. Scott has this theory that recovery from an injury or disease is merely just a method of adaptation. And he has been observing fruit flies Mm -hmm. and has uncovered their adaptive power and has created a serum based off fruit flies. Uh Uh-huh. So Dr. Bach is pretty skeptical, but he knows of a patient who is dying of tuberculosis named Kira Zilas. And he's like, well, she, she's going to die real soon. And so they say, Kira, what do you think of this? And she's like, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll try this experimental procedure. Mm-hmm. Within a week after taking this serum, Kira is released and healthy. After her discharge, the doctors hear she has been arrested for murder and robbery. The witness claims the killer of a person who died during this mugging uh, was a skinny brunette, but Kira is curvy and has whitish blonde hair, so the case is dismissed. There's no way it could be Kira. However, at the trial, the doctors notice that Kira's hair is brown, but turns white in sunlight, and they take this as evidence that she's become highly adaptable. Um, okay. So they want to do some further experiments to see what is going on, and Kira agrees. During these tests, Kira confesses to Dr. Scott um, that, no, I did kill that dude. I needed the money, and believes that Dr. Scott is in love with her. So she goes to seduce him, and as she does so, she changes in front of his eyes to an even more beautiful woman. Okay. Uh, Because she's highly adaptive. Yes. Um, And uh, fade to black. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Also during these experiments and also with some stuff with guinea pigs, they discover that this adaptive ability that they seem to have stumbled upon is related to the pineal gland. Okay. Because 
glands, Ben. Right, yes. So they want to operate on Kira to, you know, remove this strange ability of hers. Hmm. And she doesn't like that, so she escapes. Um, They do try to uh, put her under anesthesia, but she, like... Adapts to it? Yeah. Yeah, because she's a fucking Borg now. (laughs) So she, uh, to get away, steals a car, kills a kid in a hit-and-run... And next thing that the doctors hear in the papers is uh, Kira is now engaged to an up-and-coming politician. She appears more frequently in the news, again, as, like, (laughs) signs that her influence is growing and getting more power and adapting to achieve this power and influence. Why are you laughing? I'm sorry. It was just the way you said it. Um, I think it was the way you, like, dived into the sentence, but, like, you said... She appears more frequently in the news, but I definitely, like, before you got the ooze out, like, I thought you were going to say she appears more frequently in the nude. That's one way to adapt. I'm not going to hold that against her. Okay. She returns again to the doctors, specifically Dr. Scott, to seduce him again. And the So doc- she appears to him in the nude. <laughs> but this time the doctors plan a trap. Dr. Scott believes that there's no way an animal can adapt to their own waste products. So carbon dioxide that you breathe out. Right. Okay. So they use carbon dioxide to knock her out. Then they operate. That's better than the other alternative I was thinking of when you said waste products. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) They, uh, they operate on her pineal gland and Kira seems to be returned to normal. Though Dr. Scott still sees her as, like, the dangerous, uh, ambitious woman that she proved to be. The Adaptive Ultimate was published in November of 1935, and Weinbaum's star was rising higher. You know, all through late 34, 1935, he has stuff coming out in, like, these major journals, and he is riding high just as his health also started to decline. Oh, no. So unfortunately, he would pass away in December 1935 at age 33 from lung cancer. Oof. There were many posthumous works published, um, including short stories and novels, like uh, The New Adam, published in 1939, The Black Flame, 1939, The Dark Other, 1950, which was a new title given his very first novel, The Mad Brain. Oh, okay. And The Adaptive Ultimate proved itself adaptable, um, first to radio in 1949 on CBS, and then next in 1957 with She-Devil. Okay. So, from my own research, it seems like the movie follows the plotline of the short story reasonably closely um at least the premise is is the same i just want to remark that well for one thing the reason why flies are very very good at adaptation is uh their short generation span exactly you can observe adaptation happening in flies over the course of a single human lifespan because they don't live very long. And so you have successive generations because Mm -hmm. adaptation happens over the course of generations through sexual reproduction, not within a single individual. Yeah. (laughs) So, so that's not how adaptation works. Um, Like that's the same reason why 
doctors study guinea pigs or mice or other kind of short-lived organisms. Right, exactly. There's nothing more adaptive about a fly than a human. Mm -hmm. It's just that you can observe it happening in flies so much easier if you're experimenting. So that feels like Weinbaum misreading like a popular science article (laughs) or something. Um, Also... If you expose someone's hair to like a lot of sunlight over like successive generations, what color do you think their hair goes? Lighter, like blonde or darker? Darker because of melanin. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So anyways, um, I bring those two points up because they'll be relevant to the movie as well. (laughs) So She-Devil comes to us from Regal Pictures which means that it is time for us once again to talk about producer Robert L. Lippert. Lippert was a producer of B Pictures with a long and varied career. Fascinated by movies from a young age, he got himself a job as a projectionist at his local theater, worked his way up to become manager, then the owner, and then by 1942 he owned a chain of theaters in California. Dissatisfied with the rental fees he had to pay to big studios, Lippert founded Screen Guild Productions as a B-movie distribution company. In 1948, Screen Guild became Lippert Pictures as he went into producing the films as well, with a major hit in 1949 with I Shot Jesse James, and another hit in 1950 with Rocketship XM, which was rushed in production to beat the higher-budget Destination Moon into theaters. However, in 1952, Lippert returned solely to distribution due to a dispute with the Screen Actors Guild. This was because Lippert sold TV rights to uh, his catalog, but wasn't paying residuals to like actors and, and so on mm. off these sales because he was one of the first producers to do that and kind of like standards for that hadn't really been established so this you know screen actors guild was like hey you need to pay actors residuals and he was like "Mm, i don't think i do this is tv it's a different thing um so they started saying that their actors couldn't work with him so he kept with distribution instead of production uh so lippert signed a deal to distribute hammer films in the united states which lasted until the quatermass experiment in 1955 which was distributed by united artists Uh, A couple of Lippert-produced movies that we've seen before for the show include Scared to Death and Monster from the Ocean Floor. Mm -hmm. Now, when 20th Century Fox introduced CinemaScope, there was an uproar from theater owners who had just gone through the process of converting their theaters to 3D and then 3D kind of coming and going very quickly, and they spent all that money and for what? So a lot of theater owners were angry about the idea of the cost of converting their facilities to anamorphic widescreen if there wasn't going to be very many, like, CinemaScope projects. So to ensure that there was enough CinemaScope output to meet demand, or rather, to make there be a demand, um, Daryl F. Zanuck contracted Lippert to produce 20 films a year for seven years, each to be shot in seven days, for no more than $100,000 in CinemaScope. Wow. Uh, Now, due to the SAG dispute, Lippert would be uncredited on these movies, and they would be released under the imprint Regal Pictures 
rather than Lippert Pictures. Um, so they were getting distributed by Fox, made by Regal Pictures. And due to Fox's policy that only A Pictures get to be called Cinemascope, so that's why these are Regal films and why they are labeled as having been filmed in Regal Scope. Mm. The way that the deal worked was these movies were like 100% financed by Fox, but, you know, Lippert had to keep the budget down and $3,000 of the budget was earmarked for the use of the CinemaScope equipment because he had to use it. That was the deal. So instead of shooting on the Fox sound stages, Lippert shot on like indie sound stages and rented from like cheap indie outfits rather than getting like Fox equipment just because all that stuff was much pricier. In their first year, Regal Films made 25 motion pictures, and they actually increased production to 35 in their second year. And they're only contractually obligated Obligated for 20. 20. That's right. So this is one of those movies. So this is a $100,000 or less shot in seven days Regal picture. Pump it out. Yep. So as you mentioned earlier, the film's director is Kurt Newman, who was born in 1908 in Nuremberg, Germany. He immigrated to the United States in the early 1930s, having been hired to direct German-language versions of Hollywood films in that brief era when shooting alternate versions was easier than doing dubbing or subtitles. Once his English was good enough, he moved on to directing uh, like English-language movies, um, B-movies primarily, um, such as a whole string of Tarzan movies in the mid-1940s. Newman also directed Rocket Ship XM in 1950. The script for She-Devil was adapted from Weinbaum's story by Newman collaborating with writer Carol Young, who had worked with him before on the Tarzan movies. Leading the cast in the title role is actress Mary Blanchard. Uh, She was born in 1923, although she would later claim 1927, and then later still claim 1932. Sure. After suffering from polio at age nine, oh, fuck. Uh, she ran away from home and joined the circus. <laughs> she was like, that was a near-death experience. I'm going to go live my dreams at the circus. Right. So she worked at the circus as a teen. Um, she put herself through college. And in the late 1940s, she became a successful model, which led to bit parts in films and finally a contract at Universal in 1952. She typically played femme fatale style parts in B-movies. So exactly what this is. Yeah. Into the 1960s, she primarily focused on television before retiring in 1963 after a battle with cancer. She passed away in 1970. Wow. She sounds like a really interesting character. Mm-hmm. Our male lead is Jack Kelly, best known as Bart Maverick on the television series Maverick from 1957 to 1962. We've seen Kelly before Mm -hmm. in Cult of the Cobra in 1955, and in 1956 he appeared in Forbidden Planet. Later on in life, he would become mayor of Huntington Beach, California, uh, before passing away in 1992 at age 65. Another familiar face in the cast for us here is Albert Decker, who played the title role in Dr. Cyclops way back in the day. Oh my god. Since then, he has appeared in many more movies, such as... (laughs) I would hope so. (laughs) Such as The Killers in 1946, 
Bride of Vengeance in 1949, and East of Eden and Kiss Me Deadly in 1955. From 1944 to 1946, he served as a Democrat in the California State Legislature, and for his outspoken views against Senator McCarthy in the early 60s, he was unofficially blacklisted. She-Devil was only his eighth film since the start of the decade. Wow. The same month that She-Devil came out, Decker's 16-year-old son accidentally shot and killed himself with a rifle that he had been making a silencer for. Oh, wow. Fuck. Through the 1960s, Decker primarily appeared on television, in villainous roles usually. Uh, His final film was The Wild Bunch, directed by Sam Peckinpah, released in 1969, uh, where Decker was described as probably the most troubled person on a set that was already filled with eccentrics. Another notable name in the cast is actress Blossom Rock who was born Edith Marie Blossom MacDonald in Philadelphia in 1895. She had two sisters, and all three performed in vaudeville when they were young. She married fellow vaudeville actor Clarence Rock in 1926, and the two became a duo act, uh, Rock and Blossom. In 1937, she began appearing in motion pictures under the name Marie Blake. After uh, a large number of small roles through the 1940s, she fired her agent and returned to being Blossom Rock. She gained her greatest fame after this film when she was cast in the role of Grandmama on the original Adams Family from 1964 to 1966. Good for her. And she passed away in 1978. Paul Cavanaugh is a character actor we've seen many times before in The Man in Half Moon Street, Son of Dr. Jekyll, Bride of the Gorilla, The Strange Door, House of Wax, and most recently in The Man Who Turned to Stone. Uh, he was one of the evil doctors who like was like, this is a bad idea, and like confesses midway through the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was really good in The Man Who Turns to Stone. A name that may raise eyebrows among modern viewers of this movie when they see the cast list is that of actor... X Brands. What? Spell that for me. X B R A N D S. He was born with the name J X Brands <laughs> in 1927, uh, but he primarily went by X. You see, his family came from a small town in Germany uh, where there were once two men named Jan Brands. So to avoid confusion, in this small town. One became Jan X Brands. The X initial was then passed down the family line. A baby could not be born using the X initial until the previous holder of the X initial had died. Whoa. So that is why he is JX Brands or just X Brands. Now, uh, Brands got his start in Hollywood as a stuntman, but his specialty, his bread and butter, as it were, through his career, was roles as Native Americans. Oh. Um, yeah, he was considered to be really, really good at playing Native Americans. Yeah, I mean, you could also just hire Native Americans to play Native Americans, and I'm sure that they would be just as, if not better. <laughs> uh, X Brands passed away in the year 2000. And then who is the successor of the X? Uh, I know he had a couple of kids, but I don't know specifics. Okay. The film's cinematographer is the legendary Carl Struss, inventor of Sophocles photography, 
as well as many other cinematographic tricks, such as the colored light filter makeup trick. His films include the 1925 version of Ben-Hur, Sunrise in 1927, for which he won the Academy Award, 1929's version of The Taming of the Shrew, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1932, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award, Island of Lost Souls in 1932, The Story of Temple Drake in 1934, The Great Dictator in 1940, Journey into Fear in 1943, Rocketship XM in 1950, uh, the Charlie Chaplin film Limelight, and also Mesa of Lost Women, (laughs) and also a number of Tarzan B-movies as his career wound down through the 1950s. Yeah, definitely talented guy. This is a low point of his career, I think. So when She-Devil was released in April of 1957, it was on a double bill with another regal picture, Kronos, a sci-fi giant robot movie? Like a, like a kaiju movie, but it's a robot, right? Yeah, set um, on the Klingon home world. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, set in Los Angeles, um, made by almost the exact same team as this movie. Same director, same cinematographer, same producers, same composers, same guys. Kronos is often praised, uh, both then and now, for what it achieves on its low budget. You know, you'll find tons of people who say it's like a forgotten gem of the 1950s sci-fi scene. Um, Although the story tends to divide critics, um, people tend to either think that it's brilliant or inane. (laughs) As for She-Devil, it is also generally well-regarded, but not on the level of Kronos. Today, it is available on Blu-ray from Olive Films. Okay. Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy and watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss She-Devil from 1957, directed by Kurt Newman. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching She-Devil from 1957, directed by Kurt Newman. Ben, what did you think? Well, this sucked. Yeah. Um, but hey, I... uh, Siri, what does misogyny look like? <laughs> misogyny looks like She-Devil, directed by Kurt Newman, 1957. Newman. <laughs> I think um, this movie sucked, but I think it sucked in a way that is different from how a lot of movies we watch tend to suck. In that, I think this was a very well-made movie. Like, oh yeah, well-made, well-acted, you know, all of that. Um, so I think in that way, like, it sucks in a way that is different. Yeah, but it's still not a way that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. It almost makes it worse in a way because you know that there is a level of competency behind the camera right yeah but i think its biggest problem is 
at no point were any women involved in the writing process yes. of this movie. Yes. Um, I talked earlier about the writers being Kurt Newman and Carol Young. Carol Young is a man. Yeah. He's, he's, he's a man. I knew that already. I just didn't come up earlier, but I feel like it's significant now. Yeah. Okay, let, let me give a quick synopsis. Same as the short story um, with some minor differences, and I'll mm-hmm. just go through that. So we have Kira in the short story. When she is first released, she robs a guy and kills him in the process. In the film She-Devil, she only assaults the guy, but does still rob him. Um, it happens in a dress store, and uh, it gets tied to her because she leaves her old dress behind and then like proceeds to buy new dresses with this money she stole. And it gets put into the paper, and the doctors recognize the dress. Mm-hmm. Same thing with like the hair changing and all that. Except um, that the hair changes because she's like mystique now and like wants to like look different rather than it being like adaptation to the sun. Yes. Yeah. Um, the second major difference is um, there is. OK, so Dr. Bach is um, a retired medical practitioner and he runs this clinic and he's hosting a party for um the people who have donated money to this clinic yeah and part of this is to reveal kira and dr scott's medical prowess i Mm -hmm. guess to these donors to show like here's what your money's kind of gone towards yeah um pygmalion moment (laughs) kira is introduced and she immediately hits it off with a man named uh barton kendall who is very rich, and he hits it off with her, much to the chagrin of his wife, Mrs. Kendall. Who's right there. Literally right there. There is a bit of a spat later on in the night um, between the Kendalls. Um, I guess they've never had, like, real love in their marriage. It doesn't fucking matter. He, he, like, cheats on her all the time, but this is, like, the most ridiculously brazen he's been about it in that he, like, makes out with Kira while she's right there yes um now mrs kendall slaps kira and calls her a trollop (laughs) and then has like this spat with her husband kira's like watching from her window that they have this spat and she's like rubbing her face like she slapped me she shall pay Mm. and during this spat it's also made clear that like mrs kendall isn't going to give mr kendall a divorce so kira takes care of that by killing mrs kendall uh, by strangulation. She changes her hair to black, dons a mysterious cape, goes and kills Mrs. Kendall, and then runs across the lawn. Uh, only Dr. Scott and Dr. Bach are able to put two and two together. Kind of the next step of this third thing that's like different is uh, Kira and Kendall get married and um, they go on like this wild honeymoon. She sends Dr. Scott this terrible painting from Italy. Like, oh my goodness. It's, 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 it's a terrible painting. It's bad, but it's like a portrait that like it's not nude. But no, like it, it has, might as well be. It's it has very the, low cut. Yeah, it has the same feeling as like sending your ex nudes from your honeymoon. Like that's the that's the feeling that you get from this portrait. Uh, Scott's into it. <sighs> Scott. Scott's the worst. 
So Kendall's awful. Kendall, like, to be fair, this isn't a healthy relationship in the first place. Yeah, to be fair, Kira's awful, but we can get to that later. So it's like two months into their marriage, and Kira is clearly, like, kind of bored with all this. Um, she wants more adventure. She wants more things to do. And Kendall's like, well, I thought you liked coming up to the, my hunting cabin every weekend. Like, what do you mean? And she's like, no, I hate it. And he's like, well, maybe you should have stuck with your doctor. And she's like, maybe I should have. And he's like, well, how dare you? My wife was right about you. And she's like, yeah. And then she slapped me. And then she died. And Kendall's like, yeah, a slap. That sounds like a good idea right now. And she's like, yeah, but then you'll die. And he's like, wait. And he ends up like... He's very drunk and he ends up shooting her. Yes. But I'm trying to paint the picture of like, what the fuck is happening in this fucking scene? (laughs) Fuck. (laughs) Yeah. So he like grabs a fucking revolver that you have at your hunting cabin. What the fuck? There's guns everywhere. Well, like hunting rifles, (laughs) not a fucking revolver. Like he's a gumshoe or some shit. And yeah, he shoots her. Um... And like, it's like, oh, oh no, I've shot my wife. I'm so sorry. And she's like, yeah, we need to go get the doctor. She's fine because she's indestructible because, oh yeah, she's Wolverine. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, she's Wolverine. So he's like, okay, well, let's take you down to the town doctor. I'll I'll drive you there to get you there faster. And halfway down the mountain, um, Kira reveals that the gunshot wound is healed and they struggle over the steering wheel it goes off a cliff and stock footage of a car careening <laughs> off a cliff and rolling and whatsoever and uh kira's fine because again she's wolverine uh but kendall's dead which means that kira is now a wealthy widow mm-hmm. um and dr bach who is seen through kira's act and like her beauty is like yeah kira killed him and dr scott who is still like enamored with her beauty is like nah nah dog She's too beautiful for that. Fourth thing, different from the short story, is uh, the pineal gland surgery is a success to the point where Kira actually ends up reverting to her tuberculosis and she is shown suffering from and then subsequently dying from TB. Yeah. And that kind of just, you know, wraps this all up in a neat little bow for the code. Yeah. And uh, the writers can wash their hands the whole affair yeah i think you can file the changes made to the short story under two categories um one is changes made to appease the code so i think that's why she like only knocks that guy out when she robs him at the start rather than going so far as to kill him because for the like sake of a movie that would be too much of like a ramping up too quickly because like once she's killed someone she has to die yeah. Right. And so it's like for them to be like, oh, wow, Kira, you killed a guy. Well, I guess we'll just keep you here under observation a while longer would make the doctors like much too culpable. And then, yeah, she has to die at the end, even though she gets restored, because, again, evil must pay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it gives her back her TB. So in this story, the fact that she goes back to her quote-unquote regular self but is still like no she was always kind of this type of person who had too much ambition or something Mm. like that um that's kind of in the short story 
you know, there is a bit of that like denouement that allows you to have that bit of the end. Okay. Whereas in the movie, like she dies, you have no idea whether it yeah. was because of this serum that she was acting this way or not. Yeah. And I want to get to that in a moment. But the the second category of types I'm of sorry. changes, um, I just wanted to say was basically like, you know, how the Grinch stole Christmas 2000 kind of changes where it's like, how do we get this short story into a longer plot like that's the whole kendall thing right she she yes. she does the, all the kendall stuff because they need to expand it out to being like a movie length plot rather than like a mm-hmm. half hour or or you know an hour long episode of the twilight zone the fact though that it's like tied in with this guy donates to the clinic mm. rather than just like a politician we read about in the newspaper yeah it is well integrated integrated i'll give it that um so i feel like there's a lot that you want to say about this movie i just want to rant i just want to yell that's fair so i want to hit some specific problems that i have with it go ahead okay so (laughs) i will allow it sure so here's the thing um why the movie is bad is because it's terribly written Mm -hmm. um and it's dramatically inert it's also you know so passively misogynist that it's just kind of boring you got really you know you have gotten very riled up about how misogynist this movie is I want to make it clear to listeners that like the movie isn't like, like nobody's sitting around in this movie going like women are in an inferior race (laughs) and they should be locked in cages and never, you know, seen and not heard. Like it's not that kind of misogyny. It's this very like passive um, misogyny that is, you know, kind of typical in culture of this era it's just brought to such a forefront by the specific plot of this movie that it's really a lot to sit through and and the fault of the movie really is how dramatically inert it is um it takes the path of least resistance with like any choice that you could make with this story Mm -hmm. and never really examines anything interesting about the story or the premise the characters are either idiots or basically non-entities um and it's because of this path of least resistance that it becomes misogynist so the way in which these problems play out that are the most harmful as far as i'm concerned not just in a way of like this movie is problematic like www.themarysue.com slash eight reasons why she devil is problematic like not so much (laughs) harmful in that way but like harmful in like we're allowed to joke about the mary sue because i wrote my master's thesis about them (laughs) and also freedom of expression um (laughs) i when i say harmful i mean like harmful to this movie being like successful as a movie Mm -hmm. you know and as a story ah so so first off The character of Kira could be interesting and just isn't. This movie engages in like a fairly common trope uh, whereby a sexy, independent, take charge woman is an evil woman. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, You see this in a lot of culture. Um, The example that. Alrana. Okay, I was going to get to Alrana. um, But yes, that was a realization that I had halfway through watching this. I went, oh, shit. This is just Alrauna. Yeah. Um, Only like at least this version doesn't use like weird mandrake possible semen junk to like make 
Yes, yes. She's not a test tube baby raised <laughs> by like an old man who then falls in love with her late. Like that, that's not in here. But um, I do want to talk about Alrana and why Alrana is kind of better than this, even though we didn't really like Alrana either. I was going to say Dark Phoenix Saga because I was going to get to Alrana later, but you're totally right. Um, you were thinking X-Men because of X-Brands in this movie. <laughs> right. So yeah, so this is a trope, right? Yeah. And I could bash the movie for that trope, but like so many things across culture engage in that trope. It's not that I'm giving this thing a pass. I'm just saying that like singling this movie out for it makes it seem as though that's like a specific fault of this movie. And it's not. It's a specific fault of culture. I want to talk about the specific faults of this movie because I'm willing to like give things some leeway for existing in culture, mm-hmm. you know, you, and can't, I, you can't take things in a vacuum. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I think that's something that we've demonstrated on the show before. And I also just want to say that, like, I do acknowledge that the path of least resistance that you've outlined is because they had seven days and they're making <laughs> 20 movies a year. Yeah, for sure. For like, sure. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I empathize with why they made these decisions. Yeah. They're just still bad decisions. Yes, absolutely. Like, it's clear that what's happening here is a bunch of people who are very competent are making a movie without really thinking about it. Yeah. Um. So, you know, I don't mind that she's evil and that that's equated to being, like, sexy and independent. And by saying I don't mind, I mean, I recognize that's super problematic, but let's move on. Um, <laughs> so when it becomes clear that Kira's like a gold digging bitch. Um, <laughs> the doctors are like, specifically Dr. Bach is like, well, I wonder if it could have been the serum that turned her from good to evil. She was so timid and me- weak before, and now she's so assertive. And it's like... She was dying of TB. Yeah, so these guys didn't know Kira at all Mm -hmm. beforehand like they just find her in the hospital she's about to die her backstory is that she conveniently doesn't have one like it's like oh she has no family she has no friends she doesn't have a real job um and she's dying of tb uh they they basically like if you read between the lines she was probably a sex worker Mm -hmm. movie doesn't say that because it's a studio film from 1957 and it's not going to be that bold yeah i agree uh because at one point dr bach is like well we can't allow her to return to the The life life she had before that led her to this situation in the first place right so she's dying of tb so you took like a woman who was living a really hard life and doing whatever it took to get by who was going to die of TB, and then you made her indestructible. And they're like, gosh, like, she's she's so such a wanton... She wants things. What the fuck? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, man. Like, so the thing is, is the movie posits throughout the movie that um, she's like this because of the serum. And they even go so far <laughs> as to, like, really take a left turn into some very extreme pseudoscience here where they're like, well, in ancient times, the pineal gland was thought to control the brain. And Dr. Scott's like, right, but the pineal gland doesn't do shit. 
And Dr. Bach's like, ah, but what if it does control the brain? Because what if, as the ancients once thought, it is like the house of the soul? And because we know that your serum gave her a glandular disorder, maybe it's the pineal gland that has been disrupted, and maybe maybe she doesn't have a soul anymore. Maybe we, <laughs> we broke her soul. Yeah, and it's like because they constantly call her unhuman. Yeah, it's it's maybe we didn't save the life of a human. Maybe we created an inhuman life. And the thing is. I don't think it's wrong for a character like Dr. Bach to like express this point of view, but there's nothing in the movie to suggest the really obvious conclusion that maybe she was always a shitty person Mm -hmm. and you just gave a shitty person invincibility. And this gets more problematic with the fact that Dr. Scott is in love with her. Yeah. So the thing is... (sighs) Dr. Scott is in love with her the way that like, like a a 17-year-old boy is in love with his favorite porn star. Like, he doesn't know anything about her. Mm -hmm. And in terms of like her personality, he really only knows post-serum Kira's personality. If we're going to take the idea that the serum changed her personality as, as red, because... Well, as blonde. Right. As, you know, pre- serum kira her personality was i think i'm gonna die (laughs) um so like scott falls in love with her because she's hot and like you know i will say this to the movie's credit she's hot yeah uh the actress does a great job being hot and like you know owning that role in the movie yeah but you know he keeps insisting like oh well we should give her a chance. You know, maybe it's the serum. Maybe she's not in control of her own abilities. Maybe we should try to like fight to save her and fix her. But the reason he wants to do that is because he's in love. But the only reason he ever states that the whole movie about why he's in love with her is because she's beautiful. Yeah. So that is her value as a person. Mm -hmm. It's that she's beautiful. beautiful. And so, you know, it doesn't, nothing else really matters. You know, and of course, this movie does the like really aggravating Hollywood thing where like she's a very gorgeous brunette, but once she's a blonde, oh, watch <laughs> out. You know, everybody's <laughs> fucking f- like you could you you don't see the bulges in all the men's pants because it's that 1950s, very baggy style of trouser. <laughs> but you can feel it radiating <laughs> off the screen as everybody trips over themselves every time she walks in a room because she's blonde. Yeah. And so the movie makes these like assumptions in the story that are just like so weird because again, it's path of least resistance. Like you could really dig into like, who was Kira before? Is this what she's always been like? Is it the serum or is this just her? Yeah. Cause she does have a line that's like, like I came so close to death. Now I want to take life by the horns. I'm going to take what I want and not let anything stop me. And like, that seems to be a common refrain when someone's like gone through a near death experience. Like I've seen that, like, things can change very it's, quickly. It's reasonable psychology, not yeah. not evidence for the non-existence of a soul. Yeah. Um, and it, it is the same Al Rauna problem where like Al Rauna's justification for why the character like 
wanted nice things was that she didn't have a soul. Yeah. And, and so, you know, so there's this, so the movie could investigate her character and doesn't. And then with the doctors, the reason why, so there are protagonists and they're completely insufferable. And the reason why I think is totally just from people not fucking thinking anything through. It's because they are a extremely paternalistic Yes. Towards Kira in a way that's like, we know best for you. Right, right. Which is like common for doctors, men v. women in this time period, but also common for doctors v. women. Like in anytime. Gen- yeah. Like it's because they're men. And it's because they're doctors. So they're being portrayed as being very paternalistic, which would be like aggravating. But it would be one thing if also they weren't so clearly horny for her at the same time, which then pushes it into like really really gross like it's like oh yes kira well you see you don't have a job or anywhere to go or any family or any friends so me and dr scott were thinking that maybe you could come sean connery you could come live with me in my giant house under observation just you and us two men oh and and hannah our caretaker maid i don't know who would i think he says who would be our um chaperone chaperone which is like you are like 70 years old dr bach <laughs> and if i don't you can't control yourself around a 30 year old woman you need to go sit in the corner <laughs> i don't know who's worse bach or scott because bach is the one who thinks she doesn't have a soul uh, and is all we meddled in god's domain and all that but at least he's right about the fact that she's evil <laughs> Um, but on the other hand, Bach is the guy who's like constantly admonishing Scott for having fallen in love with her when like Bach is clearly also super turned on by her all the time, especially in the beginning. Yes. Like Bach is the kind of guy who will be like, you know, Kira will be like, so I bought some new lingerie and Bach will be like, well then show it to us, my dear. And then after they're finished gawking at her, we'll be like, so I'm pretty sure she killed a man to get that lingerie. <laughs> but like he literally does this but like i don't know if that's worse than dr scott who might have to take like the prize for biggest idiot see even more than david manners right well see so the other characters i say they're non-entities because there's like nothing to them like dr bach is an old doctor uh barton kendall like i know you hated him because he's a jerk but at least at least i will say at least with barton kendall like the movie knows he's a jerk it's why he dies. Yeah. Um, the thing that makes the scenes between him and Kira frustrating is it's just two awful people like arguing to each other. But like Barton Kendall is just a skeevy rich guy. There's nothing more to him than that. Kira is just a greedy woman. There's nothing more to her than that. Dr. Scott does have a personality trait and it's fucking idiocy <laughs> because Dr. Scott's there like watching this woman just fucking murder people left, right and center and use him really obviously and all of these things. And he's just like, well, but, but she's hot, but she's hot though. And like, she's, she's doing all these terrible things and he's just like drinking himself into a stupor because he can't have her. And the movie does this thing where basically the very first time that they realize that she's committed a crime, which is when she bonks that dude on the head, steals the thing, and then later they're like, oh, that was her dress, though. What should have happened is Dr. Bach should have phoned the police and been like, hello, police, there's been a crime. And you might have thought, like, well, how are they going to explain to the police 
all this stuff and blah, blah, blah. And, and the movie tries to make this some sort of point as if like the doctors are like accessories to the crime because if we take the movie's perspective as true, like they gave her a serum that made her evil and therefore it's their fault that she stole a thing. And it's like, well, okay, if you don't want to go to jail, doc, don't bring up the fact that the serum made her evil. Just explain that it lets her change her hair color at will. <laughs> um, you have all kinds of scientific proof for that. You don't have scientific proof that you took away her soul somehow. And then secondarily, if a doctor does a heart transplant on a murderer, and then that murderer with their new heart goes off and kills again, the doctor is not criminally liable for the murder. No. But that is like the position that this movie takes. Yeah, it's very much like, like you said, Path of Least Resistance, because they're trying to map this story, and maybe it was always kind of mapped onto this, around the like Frankenstein mad scientist yes. thing of meddling with God's domain. Mm-hmm. And that works for Frankenstein because he takes dead bodies and sews them together and brings it to life, not cures someone of tuberculosis. Right. Like there's a thing later where Dr. Bach is literally giving Scott like a speech that's like, maybe she was meant to die and we meddled in fate. And, and it's like you fucking doctors. doctors. Yeah. What's the line between like giving someone some Flintstones vitamins and being like blasphemers who play God? Like, yeah, you know, so so yeah, it's that's kind of bullshit. The other reason why Frankenstein works is because it's a story whose entire plot line has been designed around a metaphor for being a shitty parent whereas this movie is a metaphor for like bitches be crazy though yeah what if frankenstein and the creature fucked right yeah uh because they definitely fuck (laughs) yeah um (laughs) it's and then and then the thing is is it's dramatically inert because no one ever makes like an interesting choice in the mm-hmm. entire movie, it's, it's, you know, the doctors just sit there while there's this murderess in their house because she's hot. And then she leaves when she finds richer people to bum off of. And then she comes back when she's killed that person and there's nowhere else for her to go. And then they're like, oh, carbon dioxide. Cool. And then they just do it. Right. And then like they do the procedure and then the procedure works and then it gives her TB back, which listen, there's a lot of bullshit pseudoscience in this movie, but I feel like, I feel like that shouldn't have happened. Well, I, something, the medical opinions on scream scene are not verified. Right. Um, I'm pretty sure tuberculosis can live in your lungs and be dormant. Okay. Um, I think okay. that's why you can have like no symptoms and still kind of pass it on sometimes. Okay. I'll, um, I'll, I'll, but like, again, I'll buy that. These are not verified. No, I'll buy that. That's fine. Okay. But regardless, once they've decided to do this operation, the last, like, I don't know how many minutes of the movie that is 10, 15 are, are like nothing. There's no, no, there's no tension here at all because it's just what they want to do is what they do and it's what happens. Yeah. Like there's no twists here. There's no difficulty for them in doing any of this. And it just, yeah, you're just biding time from that point on. Yeah. 
I was really intrigued by this movie when it started because they were, it seemed like they were trying to put an effort into making the science seem plausible. Yeah. Because, like, we start off in the lab and, you know, he's explaining and showing, like, I did these guinea pigs and this cat and then this monkey. and He's using a lot of, like, real sounding words. Yeah. And it's clearly, like, like, obviously this isn't real, but... It's trying to be plausible. And that mm-hmm. was like a step above what I was kind of expecting from a B-movie schlocked out at seven days. Yeah, yeah. And then it, and then also, also, it wasn't just like um, Scott being a mad scientist. Mm-hmm. He's like, I think the next step is human trials. And Bach being like, well, I don't think that's ethical. And Scott being like, well, I, I don't think so. Like that would be the next step like you've seen the evidence and mm-hmm. and stuff and sure it's not peer-reviewed but you know it's kind of the next step and it, it's definitely like not just scott being a mad scientist yeah they he's do, not just making werewolves in his basement they get kira to sign a release yeah that's true they do like these small things that are like i don't know almost as if it, an attempt it's probably just to fill time but it's almost like <laughs> an attempt to give it some like scientific legitimacy it's it's again i think it's a sign that like the people who made the movie weren't incompetent Mm -hmm. they just weren't thinking of what was like going to be dramatically interesting Mm -hmm. because this movie isn't dramatically interesting no man you didn't you didn't touch on this when they were doing the operation but fucking scott man because oh god so they're going to yeah do whatever with the pineal gland. And I don't know where that gland is, but presumably it's in the brain, right? So that will get rid of her ability to wolverine away any kind of scars. Mm-hmm. And box about to cut into her forehead. And Scott's like, no, she must remain beautiful. Yeah. He's like, yeah, but it's like so the glands right here. And he's like, no, go up the nose. I don't fucking care. She yeah, has to stay beautiful. He's so Gross. fucking creepy the whole movie because her value is entirely just that she's beautiful. Like that's it. Like she does not matter beyond that. And it's like, man, she sent you that point painting. Like that's all you wanted. Yeah. Like that's all he has now. Right. It's, it's, it's gross. And, and it's little things like that Mm -hmm. come up all the time. And I feel like, again, it's like these writers aren't thinking about, how it makes their characters come across because I think like things like Scott being like, Oh, but you know, I love her and like, no, I want her to be beautiful and stuff. Like, I feel like those are meant to be showing us that like, Oh, like he's, he's a person, like he cares. Like he's not just like a, like a, a soulless, like scientist. Like he cares about he her as be, a woman. He may be a scientist, but he's just like us. <laughs> right. Super into beautiful ladies. Yeah. Yeah. Like, but the thing is, is, like there's a scene that I think is really telling where she's stolen a bunch of money and she buys a wardrobe with it and she shows them the wardrobe and Scott's like, Holy shit, babe, you're like super fucking hot. Like to her face, like just like dying swooning over her. And then him and Bach go into the lab. (laughs) You just keep leaning more and more into that CH. Uh, They go back into the lab and Bach's like, the fuck is wrong with you, dude? And he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, you were fucking like drooling all over her in there, like a fucking schoolboy. And Scott's like, oh, I was just trying to like boost her ego up, you know, show that she, she, she has worth and value. 
And I think that's related to the like, she must remain beautiful thing. And that I think they're trying to show you that Scott like has empathy. Yeah. Like values her as a person. The problem is, is that it's 1957 and the way that society values women as people is by how beautiful they are. Sure. So, so it's, it's, it's this very like casual misogyny that's resulting out of the, like the society that the movie Mm -hmm. is coming from. And the movie, like horror movies are such a good place to be like subversive and like examine the culture that you're in and like ask questions about it. But then... This isn't a horror movie. Exactly. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yes. Namely, me talking. Um. <laughs> Go for it. So, Bach tries to be like, maybe it was the serum that interacted poorly because she's about to be released. Mm. And Bach is like, oh, yeah, you don't have any family, no work, no place to live. So, we thought maybe you could come stay at our pad. And she's like, oh, okay. And he's like, great. I've already told my maid. And she's like, so you just assumed that I would have no choice, that I would just come live with you. And he's like, well, yeah. And she's like, well, now I don't even want to. (laughs) Like, like she still does. But she has that kind of outburst. And it's not even anything. But it's just kind of like you just assume that I would just go live with you. It's her asserting her personhood. And after she leaves... Bach is like, well, what the fuck was that about? Why why was she so emotional? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty bad. Like, she asserts that she has her own willpower. And Bach's like, hmm, do you think the serum might have turned her evil? Well, <laughs> so it's not even that. Um, like, when they're reflecting back on, like, wow, her hair definitely changed color. Like, yeah. clearly the serum's having an effect. Do you think it's acting that way because of her emotions and her emotional outbursts? Yeah. And it's like the implied extreme emotions of women Women. and feminine coded animals like the panther that changed its spots (laughs) during the serum tests. Uh, Do you think that has anything to do with it? And listener, if you're going like, wasn't that a thing? Like, wasn't female hysteria a thing? Mm. And you would absolutely be right. Heaven forbid women have opinions or emotions or mental problems as well. Having anything to do besides sitting in the parlor looking pretty. And giving birth. And giving birth. That's fair. Uh, Asterisk, uh, high class women who didn't have to work. Female hysteria was largely diagnosed for women, if they had any sort of problems. Problem women. Yes. Um, now, the diagnosis of hysteria was less frequent post-Freud in like the 1910s-ish. When we realized that people have Mental psychologies. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Psychologies. But it was still in the American Psychiatric Association until early 1950s. And of course, the connotation still exists today. So of course, they're going to be in She-Devil in 1957. Now, all of that is like a whole bunch of yikes, right? And part of why She-Devil is not in and of itself like something you can point to as causing something, but it definitely partakes in the society and cultural tropes that we've outlined. Yeah, it's, it's you know, when you have a doctor blaming a woman for emotions too emotional because she asserted herself like 
nothing about that is she devil really doing anything that's like um abnormal for the time and place that this movie came out in but it's the way that it like just falls into the trap every time it's like if you made a movie that was just that was just nothing but stereotypes yeah so they do the operation they have to uh knock her out using carbon dioxide in order to uh do this operation because it's definitely against her will. And I get plot wise, like, of course she it's against her will. She doesn't want to change whatever. Yeah, she's an invincible murderer, like for plot reasons it needs to be done. But it also made me think of lobotomies. Yes. Especially so, once they're starting to be like, go up through her nose and Yeah. Swiggle things around. Just rip it out. Mummification. Um yeah, so lobotomies, earliest uh, first kind of experiments were in like 1888-ish. 1930s saw a huge increase in use. And kind of the most uh, notable example I will put out there is uh, in 1941, Rosemary Kennedy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so even just like a very affluent woman, you know, class and wealth do, do not protect women from lobotomies and again like lobotomies were again something that was like largely prescribed for problem women because yes. at the other end of a lobotomy you're very docile and yeah. quiet because you, you your mind's been taken from you yeah and it's sorry this is really upsetting but like it's upsetting because when a movie participates in this cultural trend for me personally it feel like i feel the weight of the entire history mm-hmm. in all of it it's why like incidents of like like domestic violence on a tv show or in even in this movie with kendall being an asshole like sure on the screen it's one slap but whether because of like things I've studied or my own personal experiences, I feel the weight of the historical trends and societal norms all behind that. And it just gets really upsetting. And that's kind of why I got worked up about this movie because it's like seeing the, the history of like how poorly women have been treated. And of course that's like, Kira, who is like a low-class white woman, it's not even looking at the forced sterilizations or forced medical procedures of women of color, for example. There are movies that will engage with that kind of history or those kind of themes, um, whether purposefully or not, in ways that can be like subversive or intelligent or like at least have something to say about it. Yeah, like, like the man who turned to stone wasn't right. actively engaging with it, but it knew that there was something there and it was able to like, I don't know, challenge it in some sort of yeah, way. Yeah, in that like, you know, the man who turned to stone's premise was, hey, you know how like we do like weird kind of not very ethical like experiments on like p- women prisoners because they can't really say no? what if that was done for evil, <laughs> right? Like that's sort of the premise of the man who turned to stone. The thing about she devil is not only does it a probably feature at least one example of every variety from the most innocuous to like most offensive 
of misogyny of this time period that you can describe. Like we're all the way from women just want pretty dresses and they, there's nothing else that they want all the way from there to like, yeah, it's totally fine to just like perform lobotomies on people without their consent. Mm -hmm. If those people are women, like, you know, we're all the way up and down that scale. So not only is all of that in this movie, like just every version of misogyny, but also the movie isn't interrogating any of it. Yeah, because, it's participating in it. Right, because the movie's not saying like, you know how we do weird fucked up experiments on women to like make them more docile and meek because when they ex express their opinions and assert themselves, we think it means that they're crazy. You know how we do that? Well, the movie's not saying, what if that was wrong? The movie's saying, yeah, that's necessary because women do be like that. Yeah. Like that's like, like that's like, cause it's like, what's the sci-fi premise of this movie? And it's like, oh, well we made this woman indestructible. So that's like turned her into this kind of person. But the kind of person that she is, is like already just like what a stereotype of like a bad woman yeah. was. So really the premise of this movie is like, what if woman bad? And the answer the movie provides is like lobotomy. As long as she still looks pretty. Yeah. Like women do be that way. It's like the, 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 the thesis. Yeah. And it was also frustrating the way that women are pitted against each other here. Mm. Like most obviously between Mrs. Kendall and Kira, um, because Mrs. Kendall blames Kira for her, the actions of her husband, even though her husband has shown this is what he has done in the past. He has shown patterns of behavior for this. Yeah, and even like in the scene where Kendall's making out with Kira, like, listen, Kira doesn't deserve a lot of credit. Like, if we're to divorce the fact that she's kind of a stereotype of like, a bad woman if we just take her as a character like kira's a shitty person but in that particular scene kendall's like hey make out with me baby and she's like no i don't think that's a good idea and he's like no i do it all the time and she's like when your wife is literally right over there watching us and he's like uh, let her watch <laughs> and she's like pushing him away like no let go of me and then that's when the wife comes down and is like you little trollop yeah. It's like it, she wasn't participating. It's this is on him. Yeah. And then of course Hannah. Yeah. So she like Hannah's real like <laughs> they, there's like a trope that isn't like it's very unlikely that it's on like tvtropes.com or whatever the fuck of the maid or butler being like the most down to earth or the most like sensible person. Yeah. Cause they're a blue collar person actually. And after Kira comes home, well to their house and has like all these clothes and like comes back down and sees the dudes. Um, Hannah mutters some things under her breath. I forget what she says, but it might as well be like, like calling her a trollop. So I think you're right about the fact that like what's supposed to be happening here is this is supposed to be the idea that like Hannah spots that she's trouble before anyone else does. Yeah. But it comes off really weird because of like when you start examining the characters like just within the context of the narrative instead of without that like meta trope knowledge because like Hannah's like 
well, you could have fooled me telling me she was sick because she looks just great. And she bought all these clothes and all this sexy lingerie that she has up there. Oh, boy. And, you know, and she's kind of complaining about it. And then, like, Kira comes down and she's like, hey, boys, <laughs> why don't you come up and see me sometime? And the boys are like, and then they like all three of them go into like another room to get fucking plastered because Hannah's already made martinis for them because it's 1957. What Hannah mutters under her breath as they walk away is sick. Yeah. It's fucking weird. It's weird. And like as soon as Kira leaves, um, Hannah is just like happy as a clam. Which I think is like still supposed to be the day after someone was like murdered in their in the house. house. Because because Kira kills Mrs. Kendall. And after the partygoers all leave, you know, Dr. Scott's like, so Kira, like you wouldn't have had anything to do with. And Dr. Bach's like, we know you killed that woman, Kira. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, you caught me. The fuck are you going to do about it? <laughs> and so that evening they try to anesthetize her with like essentially chloroform. Like I don't, it's something and it doesn't work because she's fucking Wolverine. And she's like, how dare you get out of this room before I kill you? And they, they leave. And then it's the next morning that she's packed up and left because she's realized she's not safe here anymore. Uh, and so someone has just died. They come down for breakfast. And Hannah's like, zippity doo da, zippity a, That fucking bitch is out of my house today. And they're like, oh, hey, Hannah. It's weird. It's well, also, the, the two doctors are also quite chipper, yes. despite trying to, like, chloroform <laughs> Kira, having that go terribly, and her threatening to kill them as a result, and there being a fucking murder in this house. It's definitely, like, a very extreme example of that thing where, like, you had a really bad night the night before, but then you kind of, like, wake up, and you forget about it, and you, like, come to get, like, <laughs> breakfast, and then, like, your 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 mom is still there, like, sitting like waiting for you to come downstairs, like glaring at you. And you're like, oh, that's right. I got in big shit last night. I totally <laughs> forgot. Yeah. So just the way it pits women together. That was the whole point with talking about Hannah. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's bad. Okay. Alvrauna. This is just Alvrauna. Yeah. Um, different origin story. Because I'm thinking of uh, that 30s one. Mm-hmm. We did a version of Alrana from the late 1920s um, yes. starring Bridget Helm that was a silent film. There was a remake in the early 30s also with Bridget Helm that was a silent film. There was another remake in Germany in the early 50s um, as well as earlier movies in the 1910s by Michael Curtiz. We didn't see the 1910 ones because they're lost movies. We didn't see any of the remakes after the 1928 one because we were like, this isn't horror. And we are going to preemptively decide that any future versions of this story are also not horror. And She Devil proves that again. In, exactly. Yeah. It's because, like, on the one hand, I think we say in that Alvrana episode that this is horror if you find independent ladies scary. Yes. And I guess you could say that here. The difference between that and, say, Black Moon, where the fear is like, oh, no, the black people are uprising against us white slave owners. Is that Black Moon actually tries to be scary, though. Exactly. Like, it's it's a we're trapped in the house and the monsters are outside movie. It's just the monsters are black people. Yeah. This movie isn't trying to be scary at all. Yeah. Uh, literally any time that Kira comes on screen. <laughs> like, a saxophone starts playing and it's very much like sexy 
and not like dangerous. Like, so like they're using music for a purpose and the purpose is not horror. No. It's to pitch tense. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, like. What you're gonna, oh boy, what I just <laughs> said. We've been, we've been saying worse things this entire episode, Benjamin. Like, yeah, it's just like Alrana in that it's like, oh no, we've scientifically created a woman who wants things and will stop at nothing to get them, and we must be responsible. Now, at least. And destroy her. Right. Okay, well, wait a minute. So. This is where comparing Alrana to this is, is interesting because, and I don't know how this shakes out, like how this sifts out, like which is worse because in Alrana, the scientist creates this woman from the ether, from, from Mandrake root, Mandrake root and semen. Um, it's fucked up anyways. And he's like, well, I've created a woman without a soul. Guess I'll send her to a convent or whatever happens at the start of the movie. And then she's like breaks away and has sex with a bunch of people and she spends goes to a bunch the of circus. money and kills a bunch of people. She goes to the uh, like Casino Royale. Right. <laughs> so she does a bunch of evil, uh, which mostly <laughs> consists of like fucking rich guys and taking their money. And he's like, well, and by he, I mean the scientist who's basically her dad is like, well, I can't change you because I scientifically made you like without this. a soul. So I guess the best I can do is if you're going to go around fucking older men and taking their money, it might as well be my money. And then like <laughs> he goes around with her to like Monte Carlo or whatever. And then like at the very end of the story, she like falls in love with like a, a guy and his like pure love like saves her. And like she's like, I'm leaving you for my pure boyfriend and he's like well then clearly i must kill you now and then they like run around the bedroom a couple times until finally like the pure boy shows up and he's like i want to marry your weird science daughter and the scientist is like yeah i guess i am an old piece of shit so yeah for sure and then they walk off like happily into the sunset so in alrauna the scientist decides that because he's responsible for the evil he might as well fuck the evil and then the evil is cured by the power of love in She-Devil, the scientists decide that because they're responsible for the evil, they better give the evil a lobotomy. And then once she's turned good, she dies. First, he fucks the devil. Sure. Then they lobotomize the devil. Yeah, but... And then be, the devil dies. To be fair, she does seduce him. Yeah, but he's... He's not putting up any resistance. Yeah, it's... She doesn't have to do much persuading. Yeah. Scott's like, gosh, Kira, you're so beautiful, I could just fuck you. She's like, well... Why don't you? And he's like, I get, okay. okay. Um, yeah, but like. Pants are already off. Like, okay. But like, okay. I do want to ask, like, what's worse? <sighs> True love solves evil or death by lobotomy solves. Well, lobotomy followed by death by tuberculosis because the Hayes Code said so solves evil. Um, at least with love, it implies some sort of agency mm -hmm. rather than the complete removal of it. Yeah. Like, that's the thing is like, because under the production code, like you can't, you can't redeem people or like you can, but they still have to die. <laughs> right. Because like, right. Your redemption has to involve like you dying for the good of everyone else. 
Um, I'm done talking about this movie. TBH. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's not horror. Um, yeah, so it won't be ranked. It's not going to ranked. But it, if you would like to see the other movies on the miscellaneous list, you can go to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you want it to. If you subscribe to our RSS feed, you can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review, telling a friend about it online or in person, especially if you've got that double vaccination. And then if you've got any money left over, you can head over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast to support the show financially. You can join up to become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month patrons at the five and ten dollar level get access to regular bonus audio and uh at the end of june we're going to be putting out the first episode of our new patron supported bonus series of episodes about horror adjacent movies with a look at Abbott and costello meet frankenstein Yes, so watch your RSS feeds on the last Saturday of the month. That's patreon.com slash podcast to support the show. What are we watching next week, Ben? Next. Please tell me it is better than She-Devil. Yes. Okay. Next week, we are watching The Rebirth of Gothic Horror. Okay. okay. Now, uh... in color. Oh my god. From Hammer Films, starring... Peter Cushing, and Christopher Lee. It's The Curse of Frankenstein. Amazing. Yeah, it's going to be good. I'm super excited. So am I. We will see you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye. Bye.